Looking for a graduation gift to inform, inspire, and encourage? When you give a subscription to Christianity Today, you're giving redemptive, relevant news and thoughtful balanced dialogue about the church, current issues, and public theology. Visit orderct.com slash graduate gifts to get a discounted student subscription for the graduates in your life. Starting at only $2 per month, this gift will engage and grow their faith throughout the year. Click the link in the show notes or visit orderct.com slash graduate gifts to order now. That's partly why I went into education, because as I went up the ladder in my own educational journey, there were less and less folks like mm. me, you know, we were getting like nothing up there mm. into the echo chamber of what is the ivory tower, mm. you know. And so I was just like, we need more voices up here to be saying like, no, pause. That makes no sense to call people this because guess what? I'm that person and I don't appreciate being called at risk because at one point I have to stop being at risk. This is Where You're From, a podcast for those who believe it's important to stop and listen before we speak. Join us as we ask another Christian thought leader where you're from and discover how their life experiences and expertise, even if we may disagree with something they say, offer us an important perspective that's worth thinking about. Welcome to Where You're From. I'm Rasul Berry. When was the last time you felt like you had to fight to survive? Imagine if your childhood included relocating between different countries and needing to join a gang to survive because you felt like your life was at risk every day at school. When you think about school, do you see moments where teachers didn't believe in you despite being a straight A student? Was school a safe haven or a danger zone? On this episode of Where You're From, we will explore what it means to survive when almost all the odds are against you. Today, I'm talking to Dr. Alma Saragosa Petty, a first-generation high school and college graduate born in Los Angeles, but raised in Acapulco, Mexico. Dr. Alma is a Mexicana activist, intellectual, and an expert and practitioner in the field of education. She loves Jesus and has an unrelenting desire to live in a more socially just world. She is the co-host of the Red Couch podcast and a co-founder of the Prickly Pear Collective, a faith-based trauma-informed collective focused on bringing people together to move toward healing. Join me as I talk to Dr. Alma about her experience with not just going to school, but also surviving school. Here's Dr. Alma on where you're from. I am from a lot of places. So mm. just for context, my mother is from Acapulco, Guerrero, which is a southern western state in Mexico. And she became a single mom when I was three. She brought me back to Mexico to stay with my family. And so I kind of have to, you know, say that I'm Mexican <laughs> because of that direct connection and just living there and gone to school there for a few years. And then when I moved to L.A., I'm from Southeast L.A. So the majority of the time I lived in Huntington Park, but I kind of moved around all over uh, L.A. We were, you know, working class background, so we would always go wherever the rent was cheaper. So mm. that's where I'm from. Okay. Right there. <laughs> that That's kind of interesting because most people don't spend their childhood traversing nations. Mm. Like what was behind that movement? Yeah. So in some ways I kind of have a very like common story in that way. Like a lot of Mexicans in LA and a lot of folks from Latin American countries have this story of like 
having parents, you know, from their respective countries and then coming here, not being able to afford a cost of living, all that, right? Even in the 80s, 90s, whenever it was. And basically having to either take us back to their homeland to be raised by their parents while they made enough money or saved enough money to like be able to afford us over here, basically. Mm. And that's actually like where I was growing up. That was normal. <laughs> like <laughs> okay. a, lot, a lot of us had that yeah. story and it didn't feel weird. And it wasn't until I went to college and got out of where I was from that I realized like there was a lot there, <laughs> you know. Got you. Now, There's a lot. And it's amazing because as kids, sometimes you don't even realize what's happening. So, no. like, how would you describe the way that you were experiencing mm. life in the world and in that time period of moving back and forth? Yeah. So the way that I was experiencing it was more like I just had a really big family. My mom is one of seven and my grandparents were also taking care of other cousins. Mm. So I always had someone to play with because I actually lived in Mexico until I was almost eight years old mm. or a little less than four years and so while I was there, it just felt like this is what home was. Hmm. It was the jungle. Acapulco is a very tropical place. So we had a mango tree, a lemon tree, an almond tree. Mm. And I don't think we even had paved floors yet in our home or running water. So outside was the shower. All the mm. kids just kind of got hosed down <laughs> or bucketed down. And it just felt like this big extended uh. family. And Almost yeah. like being part of just the earth. Like I'm just the earth. I, I can't front. I'm I'm a little envious to have a mango tree at your disposal. I mean, man, <laughs> that's incredible. <laughs> it was pretty bad. Yeah. <laughs> Our favorite snack there was green mangoes are actually edible. And mm. we would just add a bunch of salt and lemon and chile, like which is like hot sauce. Yeah. So that was my childhood snack. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. So like you were a U.S. citizen because you were born in L.A. Mm -hmm. So was that a challenge going back and forth from these different places or, you know, with family and whatnot? Or was that not an issue? Yeah, I didn't see my mother for that whole time because she couldn't come back. She was... Mm. You know, just here illegally, basically. You know, she had immigrated mm. into the country along with some of her sisters and I think my biological father at that time. And so, like, what I knew of her was through boxes that I got in the mail and also phone calls. Wow. And this was, you know, pre, like, fancy phones, you know, <laughs> smartphones. <laughs> right. You could FaceTime right. Yeah. <laughs> all that. Yeah, we couldn't do any of that. So she was kind of like this distant, I don't know, like, godmother figure that I felt, like, sent me cool stuff sometimes and was able to call sometimes. That's kind of our relationship in the beginning of our lives. Until you were about eight, mm -hmm. you were saying? So what happened was there was a general amnesty during the Reagan administration. I think that the way that it worked is that if you had been here prior to a certain year, we're just going to give you like residency because at that time, I think it made sense for taxes, you know, taxation and right. being able to just count yeah. like who is actually here and who is living under the shadows of this government, right? And so when they did that, she was able to gain sort of like residency. So literally you're saying that that legislation, the mm -hmm. Immigration Reform and Control Act of 1986, reunited you to your mother. Mm-hmm. Yes. Wow. That's a, a side of these kind of, when we talk about issues like immigration, that's something that people don't oftentimes get to see or hear, that you had been separated for mm -hmm. such a long time. Do you remember what that was like? when you were able to come back at eight and kind of have that reunion? Yeah, it was rough. I actually have been writing about just my own story as well. And something that I remember very vividly coming back, I moved into like a living room of one of my aunts in South Central LA. 
And at that time, mm-hmm. I don't know if you're really familiar with LA, but the mid 80s to the like mid 90s was hot in LA with gangs, mm-hmm. is what I mean by hot, mm-hmm. by the way. <laughs> it was just real yeah. like volatile. The block was hot. Yes, it was, you know, for lots of reasons. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so when I came back, I remember just thinking like, first of all, what is this place? It's concrete and dirt and Mm -hmm. nastiness. I used to live in a jungle. You know, I used to live in a place where it was beautiful. I literally had a view of the ocean from the top of my roof. Mm. And so coming to this country at that age and in that setting, I was just like, um, what is this? Like, (laughs) why did you bring me here? You know? And then the playground was like metal poles and like black suit Mm. on the floor. I'm like, oh, I miss my rocks and I miss my mud. Mm. And so I remember just thinking like it was ugly and feeling like, It was dangerous. Mm. I remember within a couple of weeks of being at school, we had like two drive-by shootings nearby. And so we had to like hit the ground. And that's why I remember the suit because it would like ruin my clothes all the time. It was so like dirty, you know? Oh, wow. Yeah, when I first came, I was like, what is this land? Why did she bring me here? How is this better? How is this better? It was my question (laughs) for a long (laughs) time. Right, no mango trees and (laughs) almond trees where you at there. So I was like, I was good. I was good. But I think as I got reunited with my sister later, because she also had to bring each of us back kind of one at a time. Mm -hmm. But I think once my sister came back and once it started to feel more like a family, like our own unit, it started to feel more like home. It was like, okay, this place is not that bad, you know, and like I started to to meet people that were like me. Right. That's good to hear. One thing that is kind of intriguing because, you know, you talk about your mom's connection, uh, Mexico, and how she wants to keep that in place. Mm -hmm. And yet... She also chose to travel into the States and even in an undocumented way. Help me understand that tension of why would she leave someplace that she loved so much, even if that meant being separated from her family? Yeah. So in Mexico, there's very little like laws and control over like hiring, over social services. It's just really, really tough. So my family, we're generations poor. So even in Mexico, they were Mm. not well off. I mean, we were living in dirt Mm. floors and kind of no running water, things like that. So she was probably like second, third generation of just kind of having that kind of life. And from my understanding, it was just wanting to survive, like wanting something else to do besides what she was afforded there. So for instance, employers can say, you know, I'm hiring anyone between 16 and 28 years old. And after that, if employers can be like, yeah, I don't want old people working for me. Like I want young Mm -hmm. blood, like people that can work really hard basically. And she was thinking, I think ahead and was like, whoa, what's going to happen when I get older and I have all these kids? No wonder this is kind of a cycle that we keep kind of being in, you know, here. So Uh, key word that you said was survival. Yeah. So, okay. So you, you reacclimate. Was it also rough in terms of that relationship with your mom and immediate family in terms of getting readjusted? Yeah, I think it definitely was, but I've been able to kind of sift through why. I think part of it is my mother, because of her own experiences and probably some of that hardship that she really went through, she had to just really become Mm -hmm. just hard. She was just tough. You know, yeah. and so she she ain't got time for hugs and, right. she, you know, like all this like or emotion flurries, or softness. Or right. No. Yeah. Yeah. None of that. So that was definitely not that different, though, than what I experienced in Mexico. I mean, she's the product of her own parents. Right. right. So they weren't also yeah. the most like hopeful, loving, you know, excited people because they were surviving. They were surviving for so long. 
So it was rough because of that. I wouldn't have called it rough even like five years ago. You know, it was just normal. Right. It didn't feel yeah. like, how dare you deny me love in this way? You know, I felt like, <laughs> right. thank you for this food. Thank you for this house. And thank you for just yeah. being, you know, like being with me. So No, I totally yeah. can relate to that. I also grew up in a single parent home most of my life. And my grandmom and my mom were both incredibly strong people. And that was how they actually were able to survive. But I did also mm-hmm. notice that that level of strength also is usually accompanied by a type of hardness of like, mm-hmm. it's just you prioritize things and like emotional needs aren't as immediately apparent as like food on the table. Okay, you got clothes. Right. Okay, all right, you're 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 in school. Fine. <laughs> like, you're good. <laughs> I, Basics, I ain't got time yeah. for nothing else. <laughs> right. Um, Basic survival. <laughs> exactly. So I guess, I mean, also around this time, you're school age. And um, mm-hmm. what was that like going into the school system? So... Going into school was actually, I would say, what God really used in my life to just kind of give me a grounding sense of identity and just purpose from a very early age. So because I went to school there and their school is not required like it is here by law, there if you have money, you go to school. You can pay to go to school, basically, at least at that time. And so my mom sent money over. I was able to go to school there. So I went to private school there. Yeah. So when I came here, I was like way ahead of my peers. You know, like I already knew multiplication, division. I was in second grade and I was going into third grade. Yeah. And I knew the basics of what they were going to learn in the next couple of years. And so at that time too, I was able to have my own teacher inside a classroom that was translating and teaching me English Mm along with all the other non-English speakers. And so I learned the language so fast. Mm. I think by the next year, I was already pretty fluent for my age level. Wow. That's fascinating. So what was the demographic of your class at that time? Everybody was black and brown. Everybody, right. you know? And, and even linguistically, you would maybe not have been the only person that was also not speaking English as your first language in the classroom. Yeah, no, I wasn't the only one. Right. Yeah, that's fascinating because, you know, I talk to a lot of people who immigrated to the States and usually the culture shock in school is the biggest Mm. hurdle to overcome and being teased because of their accent or their culture or whatnot. Whereas with you, it seemed like you said it was a godsend. Yeah. Yeah, it was. Because so during recess, most of the time, you know, people were speaking Mm. Spanish. So we were all Spanish speakers at home. So cool. So. (laughs) Maybe you could talk about that next phase of what began to shift you to an education and more of a professional Mm -hmm. direction. Like, when did you start to realize, okay, this school thing is not just something that I'm just going to take to high school, but I'm going to go beyond and I'm going to keep moving forward? Yeah, I would say that I, I had some unlikely mentors in my life. I always did really well in school, but I also never really paid any attention to it I just thought like well yeah that's what you do because in my family that's what you do you go to school and you get good grades it's not like good job you did a good job you know like it's like no that's what you're supposed to do as a uh, you know as a kid of immigrant parents and so I never really paid it any mind until I got to junior high because of the way that you know I said I moved around a lot I moved into a a middle school kind of mid and and seventh grade basically instead of sixth grade which is Mm -hmm. when most when people in that community went to school And because it was so hot at that time, like just with gangs and stuff, I remember thinking like, all right, these folks, they're going to totally judge me because I'm coming from South Central 
And I had already gotten into a lot of fights, by the way, in elementary school and stuff. Despite my A's, I had straight A's. And okay, so, so you were you were throwing I... up A's <laughs> and throwing hands at the same time. <laughs> yes. Oh, what? Okay, yes, so I, I, I don't want to skip past that. What was causing the fights? So when I was in elementary school, it was uh, the next year. So after I was like, oh man, this place is ugly. I can't believe where my mom brought me. So we moved from there. So I go to another one where they're actually teaching me English. I'm, I'm kind of getting acclimated. And then the following year is the when the LA riots happen. Mm. So during the LA riots, those next three years, all of my teachers were African-American mm. women. And they were not going to allow us to not mm. talk about this. So this became the curriculum for us. Like these were pivotal years in my own development because they were the first folks to help me to understand how to be critical of what I read. So they showed me the, what the LA Times said, which was like a bunch of hoodlums doing this. And then they showed me what other news sources were saying. You know, people are hurt. This is the generational trauma that's been occurring in the black community for years. And then there was what I was learning at home, which was very anti-black as well. You know, it was all in Spanish, but it was basically anti-black. And I was just kind of like trying to make sense of my new community, my new life here in the States. And there was a lot of violence in my school. I think a lot of that had to do with you know, generational trauma, stress levels at home that are creating these toxic little beings, you know. Mm. So because I was a newcomer, when you're in, in one of those kinds of places as a newcomer, there's like a lot of like just people trying to check you and trying to figure out where in the social scale you mm. belong. And I was like, oh, no, I, I've been watching y'all the last three weeks and I saw I see what happens to the folks that are in the in the lower part of this of this ladder. So I'm not about that. And also... I was 5'2 already in fourth grade. So I was a big girl. I was oh my tall. Gosh. And so, you know, you know, I was made to be a bully. <laughs> Yo. I, so you was feeling yourself a little yes. bit. And it was I a survival. And it was a survival, the... <laughs> you know, mechanism too. Okay. Right. It was. It was. It was totally a survival mechanism. Got it. That really kind of, whenever there was folks that were trying to test me, I was just real quick with my fists. You know, I learned to be a fighter and a survivor before I learned nurturance and all this other <laughs> fluffy stuff, you know, that I've had to kind of relearn on my own. But because of that, I was just, you know, I was having this weird kind of life in tandem where it was like straight A student, but also getting into fights and trying to assess the situation at all times to survive, you know? So it sounds like that experience with those educators kind of being very intentional, you know, began to spark something in you. But how did you navigate the content that they were giving you and saying, hey, what you're reading about, mm -hmm. not just in the times, but even in what you might be hearing at home is different from what's actually happening. Mm -hmm. How did you navigate that? And even how did that relate to your own identity? Because I'd imagine hearing mm -hmm. things at home or, you know, it can typically kind of have a weighted scale of significance to us. Mm -hmm. Help me understand how you journey through that yeah i think that time really helped me to see the different perspectives that people hold mm. something that i really became aware of was that that people can have such different perspectives on one mm. event and the way that these educators really what they really wanted to get at was helping us to stop fighting okay. amongst ourselves if i had to really put myself in their shoes they're probably trying to be like y'all need to stop fighting against each other there's bigger problems in the world you know here's one and I remember like after that, it really did feel like a shift for me 
just in wanting to understand different perspectives a little more and wanting to understand why my family thought this way about black folks too. Like how come we don't have any black friends or how come in our family gatherings, they talk mess about black folks, but in school, that's who they send me to. Mm. That's who I'm with. I have black teachers, black mm. classmates. And if there's such a big problem, then why y'all sending me to be in a school mm. with them? You know, it was so like mind boggling, I think to me in that time. And of course, now I see that as God really helping me to have a sort of a heart for justice, reconciliation, understanding other perspectives, mm. even at that young of age, you know, and really learning from experts, people who are living this out, mm. Black women, you know, at that time. I mean, I couldn't have learned better from anyone wow. else. These yeah, concepts. no, that's really important. And that also reveals a certain thing that people don't oftentimes realize is how these tensions emerge even within people of color groups, like that there isn't just one kind of mm -hmm. simple thing. And so I know you ended up with a PhD in education policy. Did you know at that point that you wanted to get into education yourself? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Not yet. I think something that happened to me, and I don't want to speak for other folks in these communities, but something that kind of happens sometimes is that as you're moving, basically at this age was the prime age where you start getting recruited into gangs, okay. you know, like after elementary school, going into middle school. And I changed school. So so I once I came back to Huntington Park, I realized like, oh, dang, folks are, you know, I was getting sized up again and feeling like I had to pick something because by then it was mostly Latinos, but there was just a lot of Latino on Latino violence happening too with a gang activity. And so I was like, which one of these gangs is the biggest and baddest? That's the one I want to be in <laughs> because I'm trying to survive out here. And so when I was in seventh grade, I decided to join mm. a gang. There's a lot, right? You're about to go in there and <laughs> okay. I want to kind of zoom out for folks because um, for those, okay, okay. you know, like myself who, you know, I, I heard of gangs growing up in Philly and knew of them, but okay. at the time, definitely in 80s, 90s, whatever, it wasn't a vibrant gang culture at that point. Growing mm -hmm. up as a hip-hop head, gangs was something mostly I associated with LA and, and the West Coast, right? Mm -hmm. You know, Crips, Bloods, that dynamic. But I remember later on hearing Propaganda, your husband, mm -hmm. he made this parallel in one of his lines where he says, you know, they call them fraternities in college, right? Mm -hmm. He says, a basic principle of a fraternity and a gang is kind of a similar thing in terms of even initiation and how you join and some yeah. of the solidarity that people find. So for the uninitiated, like help us understand why <laughs> would someone, because if all you see is like, it's just a violent group of thugs, right? Like that just kind of go around and terrorize people. Mm -hmm. It is not really seemingly anything redeemable about that or mm -hmm. even attractive. What was it about that for you at that time period that made you even mm -hmm. drawn to it to say, this is what I want? Yeah, I think at that time, what it was really about was survival. And obviously, at that time, I didn't know that's what it was, though. You know, to me, it just felt like, oh, these are girls that are being friendly with me. And this is before where gangsters become violent. They get recruited, or at least at that time, we were getting recruited late elementary and middle school and then it gets violent because you're older you have access to guns you have access to cars things where you can do more damage basically so i was still in a place where i was just like oh this is just how the world is like you just join a gang because if you don't you get picked on by the gang that's just how it happens so to me it was about survival and it was like a strategy but it was also about like 
these are who my friends are. Like these are girls who live in this community. They're gonna have my back. You know, girl politics in school are already bad. Now imagine that with gangs. Yo, you just opened <laughs> you know? my mind to something. So essentially, Mean Girls is a suburban version yes, of a gang. The they the, yo, and it was quite violent. <laughs> like what ended up happening at the end of that? Like yes. they were they were pretty brutal with it. But, but with, with gu- guns. <laughs> gotcha. Mean girls with guns. No, there and there was no you guns. Got. Yeah. Okay. So in the context of joining, you say you come upon an unlikely mentor. Tell us about that. Yeah. So I joined. Stuff happened in the teacher's lounge room where we basically trashed it and got in real big trouble. At that time, there was no such thing as campus police. It was becoming a thing in LA schools. But I remember like police having to come on campus. This was when the relationship with the police was starting to become more and more of a thing because of what was happening. And I remember just getting really scared. You know, basically they got my name from one of the girls that had been in the lounge with me, like a fellow gang mate. And they told me and I was just like feeling betrayed, but I was like, I'm not going to say more, you know, like I'm not going to rat people out. Like I know how this is going. And for me, if I rat people out and I get caught and then I was also trying to find out who had done that to me. But in the process of that, I met a counselor, also a black woman who was just like, what Mm. are you doing? You have straight A's. (laughs) You know, like help me understand why you're like graffitiing up a teacher's Mm. lounge. And I had no words. And, you know, and I think that was really helpful because... When you're in survival and just figuring it out, you don't kind of step back and like, wait, why am Mm. I doing this? Is this really smart? Should I really be Mm. doing this right now? You don't think that, you know, you're just kind of like surviving the whole time. She was a very like, you know, doing her job, likely mentor. Yes, she got me thinking for sure. But it actually wasn't until I didn't snitch and then they knew that the snitching stopped with me because basically no one else got Mm. found out. And so then, you know, one day when I was hanging out with the girls, the main girl of our gang saw my grades because the counselor had printed them out, (laughs) highlighted it and made me look at, you know, was like basically like, keep this and think about that. And I had put it on my folder and she saw my grade. She's like, wait, you got straight A's? You know, this is the mm. head of the gang. And I was like, yeah, are you kidding me? My stepdad would kill me if I <laughs> have straight A's, you know? <laughs> and she was like, wait, your dad cares? I was like, mm. oh my gosh. It was so mm. sad. It just revealed so much to me about her too. And I was just like, of course he does. You know, he, this is like his thing. Like he was really into education and that was part of why I had to keep getting straight A's. And she was like, this don't make any sense. You need to not be in a gang. Just focus on your grades. You could really do mm. something here. Wow. The head of the gang was like, what you doing with your life right now? And I was like, wait, what you mean? <laughs> uh, <laughs> she basically let me walk out of the you gang. You didn't have to get jumped out? No. And it wasn't jumping Explain out. for the folks who don't know what jumped out means. And what normally has to happen. Okay, so, oh my gosh. Well, uh, I don't know if I should show what normally has to happen because it's so cruel and dehumanizing. So at that time, there was two ways you could walk out of a gang. One of them was all of the crew, including the brother crew of Mm -hmm. like the sister gang, would get in a line facing each other. And then you would walk in between both of them down that line and get and anybody could do anything to you while you're walking Mm. that line that's one of one of the ways the other ways is to sleep yourself out of a gang so you had to sleep with six of the men Mm. in the gang yeah as a woman so it's just like either way you're gonna get dehumanized you're gonna get treated the worst possible way so that you never forget that you Mm. walked out of this gang you know but a lot of it you know like i also feel like was just god's sovereignty in my life you know to kind of have someone like that just say like you know what it's cool just walk out of the gang especially the leader yeah
When we come back, Dr. Alma Saragosa Petty will share what life was like after leaving the gang and how the theme of survival continued through her experiences in education and family life and persists to this day. And maybe through her experiences, we may all find some courage to deal with our own struggles in life. That's coming up on Where You're From. If you're enjoying Where You're From, would you take a moment to write a quick review and give us some stars? Podcast platforms like iTunes and Google promote highly rated shows. So a one-sentence review of what this episode or show means to you and a quick five-star rating will help these important stories reach more people. Thank you for your help and keep listening for more of Where You're From. This episode is brought to you in part by Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Pittsburgh Theological Seminary students are grounded in faith and formed in community. PTS students are preparing for ministry with Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, Doctor of Ministry, and Certificate Programs. Begin your Master's or Certificate Program in person or online. Financial aid is available. Visit pts.edu admit. Hey friends, my name is Jade Gustafson, a producer for Where You From. Before we return to our conversation with Dr. Alma Saragosa Petty, I wanted to share a quick teaser of our next episode with jazz musician Ruth Naomi Floyd. This is Where You From. Well, you know, the reality is I'm an African-American woman living in America who loves Jesus unapologetically. And so what it means of me navigating this world this country, my community, I've not known life without the blues. But I would say that, you know, you have to look to history. You have to look, where were the blues created? And so, you know, emancipation, freedom promised, but freedom not fully delivered. And so the music changed of the African prisoners of the brutal system of American slavery. Their music changed. African American spirits were about, you know, liberation, about singing the song about life, but it was about looking forward, emancipation on earth as it is in heaven. Welcome back to Where You're From. I'm Rasul Berry. And in just a moment, we'll jump back into our conversation with Dr. Alma Saragosa Petty. But before we do, just a quick reminder that the show notes are available in the podcast description. They not only contain the talking points for today's show, but also some links to learn more about Dr. Alma and the Red Couch podcast. The show notes are available in the podcast description or on our website at whereyou'refrom.org. That's where, Y-A, from, dot O-R-G. Before the break, Dr. Alma shared how she was released miraculously and providentially from gang life. And it was shortly after that point that she decided to pursue education as her life's calling. Things didn't get any easier for her, though. And the theme of survival has continued to be a primary characteristic of her life. Let's jump back in as she begins anticipating what college might look like for her. You're listening to Where You're From. So I started to think about college more in high school. Um, I had, like I said, straight A's. I graduated with honors, but I also kind of had a little uh, rough of a year in the ninth grade where I, I basically like ditched. I, I start, I got in a relationship when I was in eighth grade, and in the ninth grade I, I ditched most of my uh, most of the year, and so I barely passed my classes. 
And back then, that's when you would get tracked into like, like college bound or not, you know, because that's when it、right. starts to matter. And basically, I got missed, even though I got straight A's after that. No one ever talked、mm. to me about college, but I loved learning. Like I remember in my English classes, I just loved. How teachers? I just had great teachers. Like I think I had like a few great teachers that just really ignited in me a passion to want to keep learning. And also, I had a math teacher who really like basically flat out told me to just go to college. He was just like, I don't know why you're signing up to go to the army right now. Because at that time, I thought I wanted to go to the army because that was how I was gonna pay for school. And he was like, You're the least likely person that likes to be told what to do. I don't know if you realize in the army, they're gonna tell you what to do all the times of the day. And I was just like, oh yeah, and I hadn't thought about that, you know. And so he's like, no, just go to college. What are you doing, you know? And I was like, all right, go to college. And so that was someone else that I think in my life became really pivotal to be able to give me information I think that I didn't have yet about myself as like I can also、mm. do college, you know. I don't think that I had seen myself as that because at that point my family was just happy that I was graduating from high school. I was going to be the first one in my family to graduate、mm. from high school. Wow, there's so much there that you talk about that I think we'll probably get into as you kind of journey on. So you. Decided to go to college. Where did you end up going? So I started out at a community college here、mm. in East LA,、okay. and then I transferred to West LA to UCLA. Okay, moving、so、on up. That was definitely <laughs> a major, major shift in my life.、Mm. You know, even as much as East LA kind of introduced me to like other populations, for the most part at that time, it was. Working class, like lower income, and what was that experience like? It was great. I loved going to community college. The community college that I went to, I had some pretty amazing professors. A lot of folks that really mentored me throughout the process. They were immediately like, "Yeah, you need to go to, to like a UC, which UCs here in California are like the top tier、right. university system."、Yeah. And so they prepared me for all of that, and I was really enjoying it. I was always really drawn to like English and then psychology, and so I majored in psychology at UCLA, and I minored in English literature. Mm. Mm. And you say it was a big shift,、mm. so you know, walk us through what that was like to actually enter into this the、yeah. hallowed halls. As a Bruin at UCLA, so I went as a transfer through the transfer summer program, which helps low-income first-gen folks acclimate to college,、mm. and especially at that academic rigor that we're sort of going to get ourselves into. And so they give you a couple of classes during the summer. You get to bring your parents to campus and have this big family kind of style like event where you really, for me anyway, it really helped to feel like at home and like okay, I could do this. I could, I could really belong here. And I would say it was one of like the greatest, really awesome programs to be a part、mm. of. So that was cool. And then the actual quarter starts when we're like going to be interacting with the whole community of UCLA, not、right. just the first gen、yep. <laughs> low income folks. And I was just like, "Wow!" I literally couldn't even understand what world I was in. There was like women in heels, Gucci handbags, just like doing the most. And I was just like, "Why? Why?" Like, first of all, give me your bag. I couldn't like eat for three weeks with that bag. Like, <laughs> so it was my introduction to like non-working class, like non-low income.、Mm. Communities, you know, of all、mm. kind of races, right? And I realized, wow, there's a whole other world in LA I had no idea about, and、mm. kind of started to open up my horizon for me because I had been, I think, insulated for so long in my own community and my own little bubble、yeah. that I was literally, you know, finally getting to know the diversity、right. in different people's stories. Gotcha. So, at what point did you decide? Because obviously, you said you. Majored in psychology, so so when did education、mm-hmm. policy become 
in the picture? Yeah. So as I was going through my own educational journey and having to write like admissions essays and things to like kind of work myself up into the master's program and all that, I realized if I would have known some of the stuff when I was younger, if there would have been like policies in place that were just a little different where people in my community could have known about, you know, all the different pathways to higher ed, this would be awesome. I want to do this. And that's when I really fell in love with education as a field and just wanting to give back to my own community, but also to expand the way that we do education in general. Like it just felt so limiting. I remember even as a graduate student in my own doctoral program, I was like, why are we still talking about at risk? When do I stop being at risk? I just want to, <laughs> I just want to not be at risk anymore. And so it just felt so like, we just need different voices here. And if we had that, things could change, things could be different. And that's what got me really excited to go into policy because it felt like it would be a pivotal place to like change things and to affect change at, at a grander scale than maybe teaching could have. And so that's really what got me into policy. So it sounds like you're, you're thinking about those moments of the teacher who right even after you missed all the deadlines and was probably going to go into a military that you know you wasn't even designed mm -hmm. really for based on your personality to say hey you, sh you need to go to college and you say you know what what if people like me would have had that kind of exposure mm -hmm. that conversation months before years before it and be able to prepare you know mm -hmm. for what was to come next and and so that kind of was what right. was driving that that's that makes a lot of sense so and it also talks about the importance of language like you mentioned you know at risk why is that a problematic way of describing or thinking about someone for me it's a problematic way of thinking about folks because there's so many assumptions that go into that. So you're assuming that there's a right way to do it and there's a, a right system by which to do it. And anyone that isn't fitting that system is the problem rather than the system mm. itself. The people become the issue rather than the system. And to me, that's why I find the term at risk for populations within education highly problematic. I get how that term is useful in like the medical field mm -hmm. and how it might be useful in public health and other... Yeah kind of industries and sectors but in education it just feels like nah bro there's something wrong with that <laughs> you know that's what, in fact that's what i used to tell my professor i'm like nah bro there's something wrong with that like i'm sorry i just okay, said okay and i'm glad you said that because that flavor that you brought with that's not a typical uh dialogue that people imagine when they watch the poet society of how a student interacts with the teacher nah bro that, that there's something wrong with that what was it like being brown and female in the academy I mean, that's partly why I went into education, because as I went up the ladder in my own educational journey, there were less and less folks mm. like me. You know, there was more and more folks that were already from privileged positions in our society. There were already folks that are third, fourth generation college goers. But the knowledge of our people, and by that I mean like, you know, just the hood, but also like Latina, and we were getting nothing up mm. there into the echo chamber of what is the mm. ivory tower, you know? And so I was just like, we need more voices up here to be saying, no, pause, that makes no sense to call people this because guess what? I'm that person and I don't appreciate being called at risk because at one point I have to stop being at risk, you know? And even as a graduate doctoral student, that was a way that we were referred to, you know, people that were from minority backgrounds or certain populations from like low income backgrounds. Mm -hmm. And I had fun in grad school and, and my doctoral studies because I refuse to kind of go along the narrative and go along with the status quo. 
But I also had a very challenging time in that I had to fight for really being understood mm. in the way that I made sense of the world. Yeah. Which is cool because I had had so many years of being a fighter <laughs> that by then I was a pro. <laughs> I was a pro. Right. Like, okay, after what you experienced, you know, like fighting folks that, you know, physically a professor is not going to be intimidating <laughs> in that way. And I'm, I'm glad you mentioned, you know, you talked about, you know, you, we've used the phrase brown, Latina. There's a lot. One of the things around words and, and at risk there, there's these things around words and words have meanings and significance and sometimes there's uncertainty about which words are the most appropriate you know mm-hmm. so right now I know that some people there's even been discussion and even debate about Latinx versus Latina how do you think about mm-hmm. that and how important are these terms and yeah. going about making sure that we speak in a way that opens up the most possibility for the people we're interacting with yeah I mean before I say that I, I do want to say that I do hold intention the fact that we're always learning and making mistakes and going to say it wrong, you know, while I also are going to challenge myself to do better and like say things differently from now on as I Mm -hmm. learn. I don't go around clarifying everybody when they're like using certain terms. I don't do that because that's just not what's going to land for folks, right? A lot of folks are like, well, don't get caught up in the semantics, you know, like, let's get up. It's actually happening, the heart of the issue. And for me, it's like, no, the semantics become then the way that we see the issue. Mm -hmm. And it's important that we also critique the ways that we're talking to ourselves, because it doesn't capture what we might be thinking, you know. And so to me, language is really important. I think there's a lot of power in language. Language also manifests in the way that we think about ourselves and the way that we think about others and society. Yeah, Uh, I'm gonna quote something from you and get your perspective. This person said, education (laughs) either functions as an instrument which is used to facilitate integration of the younger generation into the logic of the present system and bring about conformity Mm -hmm. or it becomes the practice of freedom that means by which women and men deal critically and creatively with reality and discover how to participate in the transformation of their world that's by Paulo Freire and pedagogy of the oppressed. Yes. How does that concept influence? What does that quote mean to you? And how does that inform what you do? Yeah. So what that quote means to me is that there's always a hidden curriculum. Even if it's not said out loud what the agenda is in schools, there is a hidden curriculum that's always at work and Mm -hmm. at play. So... To me, that's what that quote's about. There's always a hidden curriculum. And in order to really understand what we actually want to do with education versus what has been done, we have to really uncover that and reimagine it so that folks can use it in a way that is going to be for their personal transformation, freedom, liberation, you know, their mental as well, freedom, liberation from thinking of themselves Mm. in certain ways, you know, much like spirituality does with people's lives, you know, like it, it transforms our whole soul, like the way that we even interact with our surroundings. I mean, it should, if we have a real transformative kind of relationship. Gotcha. Gotcha. What would you say you began to have a real spiritual encounter in becoming a follower of Jesus? Mm. Oh, wow. Okay. That's a good question, because I actually recently realized that I had always been a follower of Jesus. So because Mm -hmm. I'm coming from a Catholic background, Mm -hmm. this was always a presence. Like even in in Mexico and Acapulco, like I remember my grandmother had like a shrine of the Virgin Mary. And I would just always think like, who is this lady? Like the Virgin Mary. Like, why is she praying to her? You know, Mm -hmm. and 
I would ask questions about that and she was just like, yeah, that's the mother of God, you know? And I was like, whoa, that's so cool. God has a mother and this is who she is. And folks would say, no, you had a horrible understanding of actually what Christianity is. And it's actually not about the mother of God at all. It's about God himself and Jesus only, you know? And I would just argue that, no, that's how God introduced himself to me is through his mother. And that's how I started to get to know him. Right. That was also a consistent thing in my family. So we attended mass religiously every Sunday. It was like our thing once my mom remarried and my stepdad who's raised me since I was 11, who I consider my father. He was also a devout Catholic. So when he and my mom got together, he really was like, we're going to do church every Sunday. And it was very legalistic. There was no like spirituality or like heart changing kind of happening at least at the surface level but for me god was already working through that like spiritually planting of seeds and that would later become to flourish for me in my relationship with christ you know yeah and i can relate to that i um went to catholic school from kindergarten to third grade even though i wouldn't say i started following jesus until years later much after that when i graduated high school but there were certain seeds that were planted that helped that story along that helped me understand it that god used to kind of plant seeds that later would you know like he says one plants one waters god gives Mm -hmm. the increase so Mm -hmm. uh for you was there a a different moment where that maybe that increase happened Mm -hmm. where okay like that was when the seed was planted but when it kind of took hold of you in a more deeper more meaningful way yeah that actually happened a lot later in my life so it happened maybe 12 years ago now And Mm -hmm. so I was living by myself in Oakland with my oldest daughter. So I had lots of phases. I'm going to skip through them, but just say real quick that I considered myself like atheist, agnostic, Buddhist. Like I just went through a lot of just spiritual stuff. Okay. Fast forward to, you know, I'm alone in Oakland. And what's hilarious to me about this is the Bay Area, as you know, is like one of the most progressive places ever. And so I was like, of course, God, of course, God would reveal himself (laughs) in there because I love to be a rebel, you know, Mm -hmm. and like being there, being Christian was the most rebellious thing you could be. That's basic, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. That's not getting you cool points in Berkeley, right? That is not enlightening. (laughs) That is not cool. Like, no, what is that? You know? And so I was just like, of course God would do this. Of course he would bring me over here where that would make me the uncoolest person in the block to be Christian. But that's just how God works. He knows each of us very well. And sometimes that's what it takes, right? To really get through our hearts. Mm. And so during that time, I do remember having like, I would say like series of events of just kind of being angry at the world in general and just being like, okay, God, you say you're real, you know, kind of talking to the metaphysical whateverness that is out there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and just being like, all right, you say you're real, you say this is true. I need some like verifiable facts or verifiable doings in my mm-hmm. life right now to know that this is for real. Because yes, I'm doubting Thomas. I need you to reveal yourself to me right now so that I can believe in you or I won't. <laughs> it was so childish now that I think about it. I was such a toddler in my spiritual walk. But that's what it was. I was just kind of ready for something dramatic, something different Mm -hmm. to happen. It's really hard to kind of explain it sometimes, but it was just like this moment where I knew I wasn't stepping up to my potential. Mm -hmm. And I didn't mean it in a way of like professional or academic, but renewal of my spirit, of my mind or something, Mm -hmm. you know? And I was like, I know there's more to life. So what was it about Jesus, you know, that answered that question for you or gave you that sense of faith or confidence? So I think for me, it was like looking back at the years being in Catholic Mass and 
even though sometimes the adults weren't reflecting some of the virtues that were being spoken, I remember there being a focus on bigger things than ourselves, like non-selfishness. And I was like, what's that world about? What if I didn't center myself? <laughs> you know, like I honestly was so full of myself <laughs> that I was like, what would it be like if I wasn't so selfish, if I thought of others or if I wanted to give back to others? What does that even mean to give back to your community? Mm. So it was a question of my racial identity, but it was also a question of what do I do beyond this and so I looked back at my own life and saw that you know it was the padres so you know the fathers in the church that first talked to me about loving your neighbor once I realized like oh I think there's something the church has to tell me about this and so I literally was googling like where is the coolest church in Oakland <laughs> I literally, I literally told like my pastor at that time, he's like, how did you find us? But I was like, I literally Googled cool church in Oakland. <laughs> you guys came up. <laughs> you know? Yeah, like maybe that was some know, SEO. Was <laughs> right, yeah. I don't know who designed that. So you, you end up there and, and there was this. Yeah, so I end up there and I was just like, all right, this is new. This right. is interesting. It was like a lot louder. Mm-hmm. Because for me, experiencing a mass and then going into right. like their singing and clapping and even at the basic level that they were doing it, you know, like I, it just felt like, oh my gosh, what's going on? You know, it was a lot. I'm used to like hitting myself on the chest mm. and kneeling mm. and, you know, just re- repetition and just mm. quietly, you know, doing all of that. And so that was really interesting. I remember thinking like, wow, they're real loud. Like they're all singing and they all know the song. I don't know the song. And you know, it was all English. <laughs> I'm curious about how the education policy advocacy journey has been informed by your faith mm-hmm. or how your faith has informed your education policy and advocacy journey. Right. Yeah. When I started out wanting to decolonize my own mind about in the ways that I had been educated or the, maybe the ways that I didn't even realize I had been educated is also when I found faith. Mm. I think God moved in that way in my life because I needed something to be stable while I destabilized what I had laid my whole identity foundation on mm. to get real. I think education and achievement and just being able to move up that kind of ladder had become my purpose and my goal, like the hustle of that, rather than my identity in Christ is my mm. identity. Yeah. You know, it was hard. So then I had to like, just be like, it's okay. Y'all can coexist. You know, it's okay. Like you can deconstruct here and you can deconstruct and decolonize the faith while I'm decolonizing my education. But I had to get to a point where my faith was so rooted that I could do that. Because otherwise I think it would have felt like, yeah, what is this? What is all this about? (laughs) You know, like why are we I think I know what you're saying, but you know, to help us along and make those connections that that you've made, it might be helpful to define what decolonizing one's faith is and what does that even mean? Yes. So to me, decolonizing is to understand my faith beyond the white gaze and the way that white populations have understood my religion, Christianity. Okay. So for instance, like you might want to decolonize the fact that Jesus is not a white baby. He was a brown baby and then he grew up and then he became a man. Some people only have that image of like the white little cherub, white looking baby. And that's kind of like decolonizing the faith. No, and I think the key word is the decolonizing presumes and implies that there has been a colonizing that has occurred in the first place. My understanding of that is that there's smuggled in 
to the Christian story as is understood in the West were also concepts foreign to that Christian story that was aiding and abetting a story of empire that can oftentimes be at odds with the very nature of the Christian story that is being told. It kind of reminds me of what Frederick Douglass says when he says, I love the peaceable religion of Christ, the peaceable Christianity of Christ. Mm -hmm. Therefore, I hate, you know, and he goes into this long thing, the slave holding, women whipping, man plundering, hypocritical Mm -hmm. religion of this child Child beating beating. of this Mm -hmm. land, which he says, Mm -hmm. the contrast of which is so vast that to love one is to hate the other. So what Douglas is saying is that because I love the Christianity of Christ, the decolonized version, mm-hmm. I hate the colonized version, which tries yeah. to say that it is legitimate and even righteous to own, whip, rape, and plunder people. Yeah. Right. And so it sounds mm-hmm. like what you're saying is that in that kind of a process of integration between your education and policy and advocacy and justice work, mm-hmm. that at sometimes seem to be at odds with an oppressor's religion so that following Christ right. and then integrating that with my education policy and trying to do good for as many people are actually in harmony with each other. That's right. amazing. So first of all, I got to ask you this. You mentioned earlier, your family was so proud of you that you graduated high school and were the first. So now you come out mm-hmm. just with a PhD. Like I can't even, what must have that been like? Yeah. <laughs> Bring us back into how this journey kind of reintroduced elements of your family dynamic. So my family, in terms of their like own spirituality and religion, I would say my parents are just very much believers. And I feel like I can relate to them in that sense of just being both Christ followers. Also, in my own journey in education, I think my parents stopped understanding what the heck I was doing after my bachelor's. <laughs> Once I got my college degree, they were like, awesome. That's great. We're proud of you. I mean, my dad was there. I did the, the Chicano Latino convocation for my graduation because I wanted them to understand what was happening and it was going to be bilingual. And I'm so glad that I did that because he did understand what was happening and was really Mm. proud. And, you know, it was just like this beautiful moment Mm. that I hold now. And after that, they were just like, wait, what? Now you're going to go get more education? (laughs) Like, what does that mean? (laughs) They, they honestly stopped understanding after the bachelors. They were, I think, I think they're (laughs) proud of me. But to be real, they're just like, get a job. Like, just do a job. Isn't that so funny when, like, people around the world (laughs) know you for something that your family just be like, "Mm mm-hmm, okay, whatever. (laughs) What you want to eat? Like, it's just not even a thing. Okay. So that's cool. Now, how are you applying this education, social policy degree and passion that you have? What, What is that looking like in your world now? Yeah, so now what I do is I actually work for a nonprofit directly with first-gen low-income students, and I serve as a mentor and an advisor, and so I'm helping them along their own college path. And it's not faith-affiliated, so I do get to share my story, but Mm -hmm. not necessarily. Like, it's all about just supporting their own journey. And Mm -hmm. I love doing that for the organization. That's kind of like my day job. I always talk to my students about the importance of doing things beyond what is needed to survive in the system, right? So like we need to have a job and we need to pay our bills because capitalism, but we also can dream and live for something grander and hope Mm. and love. And Mm. it's okay to imagine beyond survival. Mm. What would you want to offer into the world beyond survival? You know, that's really where I think 
my sacred spaces mm. in terms of what I love doing. Gotcha. I love being able to help others to similarly like reimagine this world as theirs and imagine like sort of what it would look like to push past some of those barriers that they have. Yeah. Even like the internal ones, yeah. you know, sometimes we're just working through so many like mental, emotional mm. kinds of things. And I think that there's more than what a formal education can offer. I got you. So again, it feels like to me, I hear that same theme of in the same way that you have learned to go from survival to thriving of encouraging the next generation even a first generation students to learn how to do the same. There's one other thing that uh, I know that you do. So, <laughs> so tell us about the the Red Couch podcast. Why is it called Red Couch, and why yeah. did you decide to? You went from I don't know if I want I'm comfortable with being this public to now you're in that public space too. So yeah, yeah. So after my doctoral studies, I was kind of in a season of reevaluating a lot, and so during that time. Jason was approached by this network to have his own podcast, Jason being propaganda. And he was like, yo, I don't know how I feel about this. Like, would you be down to do this with me? And I was like, I'm not ready. I'm not there yet. I needed more time to kind of get there. And so he's like really excited about it. And he's like, you don't have to do anything. It's like the conversations we already have, because, you know, we were already having these conversations about our own deconstructing and decolonizing mm -hmm. our own faith and our identities as brown people and just all of that. Right. And educators. We, he was also an educator. And so. He's like, you don't have to do anything. I'm just going to plop like, you know, a microphone in front of you. You were just going to be at home. And one of his friends actually suggested the name Red Couch because we do have a red couch. Mm -hmm. And it was like this invitation to folks to join us in our conversation, like sort of like a hospitality thing mm -hmm. of just joining us, being with us and enjoying each other's company. And so that's where the name came from. And that's how I got started in my more public life. <laughs> Which was, yeah, rough start. Yeah, and just to confirm, I mean, literally, I had such a high esteem for who you were just from listening to being a fan of his over the last few years. Like, I remember, for example, hearing his track Board of Education and making the connection with like, oh, his wife is an education doctor and this probably has. So it always felt like something that there was more to what I was hearing from him that was an expression of what mm. you guys were about together. And so I'm so grateful that you've taken that step to share your insights with us more directly and frequently. So I'm going to get you out with this last thing. I always am fascinated about this with the challenge of the inequalities, the structural inequalities that exist with education. The fact that oftentimes one zip code determines more about their future than their inner capacity and strength. What's something that either on the macro basis or on a micro basis, you know, as either individuals or advocacy and changing in the systems that you are really burdened about seeing happen to allow more young people like you who were getting straight A's, but just kind of were caught up in a system and a gang culture. And that caused you to maybe be overlooked had it not been for those special interventions from various mentors. Yeah. What's something that's on your heart and mind that you would like to leave either with us or just to have us be aware of as it looks like changing things to have a lot more people? Yeah. And not in a way that's going to be divisive because one has the power, the other ones don't. And so there's all kinds of those pivotal points. Like in systems theory, there's like pivotal mm. points in a mm. system to really change things. And the closer you get to power, the more you're likely to change those Got things. It. But we can't forget who it's impacting either, mm. you know? Thank you so much. And thanks for being an embodiment of helping us 
not forget the possibilities when people are unleashed by the system of education and then the challenges of when that system doesn't work for them. So your story and your journey really shows that. So thanks a lot. That was Dr. Alma Saragosa Petty sharing with us how surviving is a theme for the student who feels overlooked in their schools. We can all follow Dr. Alma's lead in creating equal opportunities for people in whatever spaces we find ourselves. This is where you're from. I'm Rasul Berry. And remember, it's not just about where you're at. It's also about where you're from. This show was produced by Mary Jo Clark, Daniel Ryan Day and Jade Gustafson and was engineered by Gabrielle Bauer. I also want to give a quick shout out to Kevin and Brian for their help in supporting and promoting where you're from. Thanks, y'all. Where You're From is part of the Voices Collection from Our Daily Bread Ministries.